pull back together. Come on back from um, your coffee, your break. Come on in, have a seat. We'll pull back together and get started here again. All right, good morning again to you. Thanks for being here again. Happy Valentine's Day weekend. Happy Super Bowl weekend. Go Bengals. Happy Congregational Assessment Weekend. Good to have you here. My name is Bjorn Anderson. I'm one of the elders on the leadership team here at Be Free, and um, excited to to share with you from uh, as we continue our series on talking with God from the Lord's Prayer. So let's take just a minute, maybe 20, 30 seconds. Uh, just be quiet. Any anything that's distracting you or uh, kind of infringing on your ability to, to sort of be here and be present. Let's try to give those things to the Lord, and then I'll pray to close us. Hear these words from Isaiah. Come, all you who are thirsty, Come to the waters, and you who have no money, come buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk without money and without cost. Why spend money on what is not bread and your labor on what does not satisfy? Listen, listen to me and eat what is good, and your soul will delight in the richest of fare. Give ear and come to me, hear me, that your soul may live. Father, we come to you as those who are thirsty, who need you. We spend our weeks spending our time and energy on many things, some of which will last, many of which won't. We need our souls to be restored, and so we pray that that would happen. We thank you for the way it has happened through the singing, um, through the fellowship. We pray for our children upstairs and dig that they would be encountering you. And we pray as we look at your word, and specifically your prayer that you taught us to pray, that it would come in a new way in our lives and in our souls. In the great name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. So I'm glad to be uh, teaching this morning. I have to admit, I'm a little nervous about following Chris Burroughs, uh, the pastoral intern for Be Free, who's preached the last three weeks. He's done a great job. Um, our 15-year-old, our, our oldest son, Soren, he made the comment after a recent sermon. He said, Chris has really been popping off lately. That's like a good thing. It doesn't mean he lost his temper. It's like a basketball term. When someone scores 50 points, they've popped off. They've done a good job. And um, I'm also frankly nervous to follow somebody with that level of accent. <laughs> so, hello, be free, let's open the word this morning. But I have, I, I have, um, I like to think I have some talents, but doing an accent is absolutely not one of them. And anything Chris said is like 10 to 40% better because of that accent. But he seriously has been doing a great job. So he's introduced us to the Lord's Prayer in our series, Talking With God. And one commentator I read this week said that the Lord's Prayer is on the short list of Jesus' greatest gifts to his church. It's one, it's simple. Two, it's short. And three, it teaches us what to pray when we don't know what to pray. So we're going to start off, I'm going to read um, the Lord's Prayer from the book of Matthew aloud for us as we start this morning. It's going to be on the screen behind me, but why don't we stand as I read this passage from Matthew chapter 6. 
the prayer that Jesus taught us to pray. This then is how you should pray. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread. Forgive us our debts and we also, as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. The words of God for the people of God. You can go ahead and have a seat. So Chris has given us a great overview of this Lord's Prayer. He's walked us through the address to our Father that Jesus is teaching us to pray to God. And then he's also walked us through sort of the first petition or prayer, which last week he talked about, hallowed be thy name, or hallowed be your name. And today we take up the second petition, one line of the prayer, three words, your kingdom come. So remember that uh, Jesus is the person praying this prayer originally, and God is the audience being prayed to. So quite simply, Jesus is instructing us to pray for the coming of God's kingdom. Here's the news headline of this sermon. The, this portion of the prayer is a call to revolution. That's the news headline of this sermon. So before I get into it, let's talk about revolutions, Okay. Here's the dictionary definition of a revolution. It's this. I'll put it up on the screen. An overthrow or repudiation and the thorough replacement of an established government or political system. A radical and pervasive change in society and the social structure. A sudden, marked, or complete change in something. That definition is talking about sort of like a political historical revolution. This week, I just Googled most famous revolutions. Found some website. Here are the top five most famous revolutions in history. Number five, the American Revolution. You can tell it's a bad website because that was not number one, that was number five. What, America's not the center of the world? You're wrong, it's number, it was number five, the American Revolution. Okay, we all know it, you learned it growing up. 1776, life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Great, important revolution. Number four. Most important revolution, according to this website I found, the French Revolution, okay? Shortly after the American Revolution, led by this guy, one of the great names of history, Maximilian Robespierre. He had this great quote, free of charge, has nothing to do with the sermon. He said this, let others write the, let others write the laws, let me write the songs. Because he knew that song had a way to move the human heart, and he moved the population of France through songs. Kind of interesting. Number three most famous revolution, according to this website, the Haitian Revolution. Interesting. Largest slave revolt in world history. It actually, through a confluence of other events, led to the fact that America was able to buy probably 50% of the land that we now own was sort of an indirect tie to the Haitian Revolution and all this kind of thing. So anyways, a very important revolution. Number two, the Chinese Revolution under Mao and in the early 1900s, bringing communism to China and still has a huge impact in our world today. And number one, the Russian Revolution with Lenin and Stalin and the coming of communism and socialism. So maybe, according to at least this website, America is not the center of the world. But those are, these, these things that I'm talking about are changes, changes that happen that have huge ramifications. A revolution represents a complete reordering, and what I'm talking about here is of a country or a social system. And Jesus is telling us to pray for that revolution in the form of God's kingdom, the coming of God's kingdom. And the implication would be 
that there's currently another kingdom in operation that needs to be swept aside. In all those revolutions I talked about, there was one way of ordering a society, and that was swept aside for a new way. In those revolutions, we could debate for a long time whether it was a good thing or a bad thing that the revolution came. And Jesus is saying there needs to be one kingdom that's swept aside for God's kingdom to come. And it's an explicit ask for God to establish his right rule. It's the, the, the prayer is probably eschatological in nature. Okay, If you're looking for the time in the sermon where someone uses a big theological word to impress you, it's now. The word eschatological means like future-oriented, and we'll, we'll kind of get to that. But it's not just a prayer for Jesus to come back. We don't just pray it like waiting for Jesus to come back. Because see, the kingdom of God coming is a present experience. The kingdom of God came in the person of Jesus. So three things about this revolution, okay, that we'll, we'll focus on for the rest of our time. The, God's coming kingdom is number one, personal. Number two, corporate. And number three, future-oriented. That's kind of where we'll look at for the next time. So the revolution of God's kingdom coming is personal. God is coming for us personally. See, when God comes through the person of Jesus and enters this world, he desires to take over our lives. And this personal revolution is an, an overthrow, a revolution of two great S-words. One, the self, and two, Satan. The King James Version of this prayer, in, I read it in NIV, your kingdom come. The King James Version is thy kingdom come. It's the old-fashioned word, thy kingdom come. God, your kingdom come. For most of us, our catchphrase for our life is my kingdom come. Jesus desires to remove ourselves from the thrones of our lives and put himself there. This is hard for us. Because we're inherently prone to selfishness. I have one favorite subject, myself. You have the same favorite subject, although it's probably not me, it's you. It's Super Bowl Sunday, so I should quote a football player, the famous former football player, Terrell Owens, said, I love me some me. Shout out to John Maravich, he always tells me about that quote. He said, that's sort of a definition of almost every interaction you have in life. <laughs> this person really loves themselves. I really love myself. Let's figure that out. Um, we love ourselves. It's good. It's fine. We, we want to have some level of self-care. But Jesus says the kingdom truly comes when we give him charge over our lives. You know, how, you know where we see this? If you turn one page over in Matthew, we'll go to Matthew chapter 4, verse 17. Let me read to you Jesus' very first sermon. Which, when you read this, you'll say, why don't they preach sermons, sermons this short at my church? Here's what Jesus said in his very first sermon. From that time on, Jesus began to preach, Matthew 4, 17, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is near. In this very short sermon, Jesus tells us to repent. Repent is actually, we might think of it as a religious term, it's like a military term, meaning about face. Repentance is that I was walking this way and going this direction in my life, and now I'm going in a new direction in my life. I've changed directions. I've turned around. I was living for myself. Jesus asks me to live for his kingdom. And in his coming to earth, 
by coming in the flesh, God coming in the flesh, Jesus is ushering in his kingdom in a new way. Jesus also ushers in his kingdom when he comes to dwell in every individual human life. And here's the thing about this revolution that's interesting, I think. It's inside out, not outside in. Jesus comes to us from the outside, but the revolution starts in here, in my heart, and in here, the church, which we'll get to in a minute. We tend to want an outside-in revolution, meaning if these things change in society, then things will be better. If I get these things in my life, things will be better. What if the thing that Jesus is calling us to change is us? Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is near. This is also a revolution against a personal enemy of the person of Satan. We don't like to talk about Satan, but he is a fallen angel who wages war against the kingdom of God and against those who follow Jesus. He's not a cartoon character or something to be made fun of. He's a very present enemy. Jesus refers to him as the prince of the world. He says he's the father of lies and he's an accuser. He accuses us. And in John 10.10, we read this great truth where Jesus says this. He says the thief, he calls Satan the thief. He's talking about Satan the thief comes only to steal and to kill and destroy. I have come that they might have life and have it to the full. If you're looking for a verse to memorize, that might be a great, great verse. See, Satan is a good co-conspirator. He co-conspires, he works alongside human selfishness and sinfulness to steal and kill and destroy. And there's a number of ways he seeks to do it. Here's how I'll illustrate it. There's a raging debate right now in our country about whether racism is individual or systemic, meaning is it individual acts or is it sort of like in these other systems? That's a great conversation to have. We can have it sometime. We're not having it here. But I will tell you this, Satan attacks us individually and systemically. Here's what I mean. Satan likes to co-conspire with our own sinfulness to attack us individually. Maybe through temptation, whether it's sexual temptation, material temptation, physical temptation. Or through accusation by getting at areas of like self-doubt or even like mental distress and accusing us. You're not good enough. Jesus doesn't love you. That person's better than you. In those ways, Satan attacks us individually. The scriptures would refer to it as like a flaming dart that Satan throws at us. In Ephesians 6, it, it, it references that, flaming darts of the evil one. He attacks us individually. But Satan also co-conspires with like larger things like the entertainment industry, the government systems, the American dream to attack us. And don't Hear me saying, I'm not saying Christians should boycott the entertainment industry. We got Amazon, we got Netflix, we got Disney Plus. We like that stuff. I'm not saying that one government system is better than another. I'm not saying the American dream is wrong, but I think Satan subtly tricks us through, through those things by making, showing us what, what the good life is. Or even showing us that, hey, the highest good is entertainment and just being entertained. Or it tries to trick us that, 
one way of government is better than another or one one like political party needs to rule and then we need to fight against each other about it or even that if we get this thing that whatever the American dream is if we get that that's the highest good and in that way Satan attacks kind of through systems the scriptures would refer to it as like the principalities of the kingdom of the world that Satan kind of comes after us Satan's a nasty enemy and we need, when we pray for God's kingdom to come, we're praying against Satan's work in our world and in our lives. So how do we seek this personal kingdom revolution? We put ourselves under the rule. We accept it. We say, God, let your kingdom come in my life. This is a one-time decision and a daily decision. This is something Jamie our good friend, former pastor, used to always talk about. The decision to follow Jesus is one time, but also daily. Many of us have made that decision. We've said, yes, I, put, I will put my life under your rule, Jesus. And then we need to affirm it daily and say, today, Jesus, I want to live with you as the king of my life. One of the key ways we do that is by submitting ourselves to the scriptures. I read a quote this week. It was either from Martin Luther or John Calvin. I can't remember, and I couldn't find the quote. They're both church fathers. They're both dead, so I don't think they'll be mad at me. This is what one of those two people said. I'll put it up here. If you want to know the kingdom of God and find it, you must not seek for it on the basis of your own ideas. You must hear his word as the foundation and cornerstone and see where he directs you. Bringing the kingdom to bear on my life means submitting my ideas to God. And this book, the Bible, we don't worship it, but it is probably our best source of information on the kingdom of God and how he works. And when we spend time seeking the kingdom of God here, then we can move out into the larger world and see, hey, where do you want to bring the kingdom to bear in the lives of other people? So that brings us to our next point. Number two, the revolution of God's kingdom coming is corporate. It's a group event. The revolution might start here in my heart, but we're really asking God to take over the reign of the world and use us in the process. I said this earlier, the revolution is inside out, not outside in. So it starts in here and in here. And because the revolution is, is that way, it, the revolution that God is bringing happens mainly on the individual and smaller group level, not on the national and political level. How do we know? Let's look at the life of Jesus in the Gospels, in the Bible. He spent very little time pursuing a national, political, military revolution. He spent all his time pursuing individual human lives and smaller groups of people that he was shaping to build the kingdom. This doesn't mean national and political issues aren't important. Some of us are called to labor, in local, state, national government, go for it if that's what you're called to do. But most of us aren't called to that, but we probably spend an outsized portion of our energy thinking about that. We are all called to be followers of Jesus and to be part of a local church body. Jesus planned his revolution by dying, coming back to life to show his his power over death, and then he left the message of the kingdom with a ragtag group of people, most of whom had just denied and deserted him. That's a bad plan. I work for a, an organization where Young Life, we love to like have strategic plans for anything. That thing would get thrown up and tossed in the trash. We do not want Jesus' strategic plan. You know what? It was a good plan. 
Because 2,000 years later, half a world away, we're sitting in this room talking about it. Because that little ragtag group of followers, through the power of the Holy Spirit, they gave their lives to the kingdom of God. They started telling other people about the kingdom of God in the city of Jerusalem where they were. Then they left and they got, some of, some of it was persecution, they went to the nation of Israel and started spreading the kingdom of God there. Not by changing laws, not by getting people elected, by telling individuals, building groups of churches. Then they went to modern day Syria and Turkey and Africa and it made it here. And that's kind of where corporate revolution happens. One of the greatest descriptions of corporate coming of God's kingdom is in Acts chapter 2 where it describes the early followers of Christ, maybe the first church. I'm going to read a few verses of this. If you've been around church a lot, you've probably heard people reference like the Acts 2 church. Acts is, is, is the book after the gospels about the Jesus goes back to heaven and this is how the church builds. Let me read this passage for you, Acts 2, 42 to 47. They, the early followers of Jesus, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Everyone was filled with awe, and many wonders and miraculous signs were done by the apostles. All the believers were together and had everything in common. Selling their possessions and goods, they gave to anyone as he had need. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. There's a lot going on in this passage. We could do a 12-week series on this passage. Safe to say the early church probably looked different than our church today. Maybe safe to say that in America, context, we might have idolized and worshipped the nuclear family more than God's family. But here's a key element of this passage. The earlier, earliest followers of Jesus Christ were much less concerned with what they were receiving from the community of faith than what they were contributing to the community of faith. I think that is an accurate assessment. What if we brought that to bear on this group of people that we're a part of the church with? That we were more concerned about what we were contributing than what we were receiving. This doesn't mean we shouldn't expect to be fed or supported by our local church community, in which case is Dover Bee Free Church. For those of us who are part of this church, maybe you're visiting and deciding if you want to be part of this church. But I think a lot of American churchgoers, self-included, tend to think first and foremost of what they're getting out of the church rather than what they're contributing. About 20 years ago, Abby's parents relocated. They moved about an hour away from where they were living, and as they searched for a church, i never forget her mom telling us, we said, what are you looking for in a church? I'm asking God to show me a place where I can serve. Not, I'm asking God to show me a place that has these list of things that I need to be part of a church. What if be free? We're in this new season of dreaming. It's weird. It's a pastoral transition. It's hard. But what if we were a group of people looking to serve each other in the world? What if we dreamt about how to reach our neighbors, our communities, our workplaces, our neighborhoods? What if we took a portion of the energy and prayers we put into thinking about larger issues in our nation and poured that energy into praying and serving this local expression of the church? I think we'd see God's kingdom come in new ways. So the revolution is personal. The revolution is corporate. Third thing, the revolution of God's kingdom coming is coming. It's not here yet. 
As I said, almost all people who've studied this text agree that this prayer, your kingdom come, is a prayer for a future reality. We're praying for Jesus to come back and take away the pain and sin and brokenness. We see a beautiful picture of this in the book of Revelation. Revelation is kind of a weird book. A lot in there. Don't understand. But it does paint a picture of the kingdom of God overtaking at the end of this world all other kingdoms. See, the first time Jesus showed up in our world, it was subtle and humble. He showed up in a backwater, Middle Eastern town, born to a virgin in the middle of the night. Many people missed it. And in many ways, he continues to build his kingdom subtly and humbly by engaging in individual human hearts and breaking forth in groups of people like this one. But Revelation describes when he comes back, we won't, we won't miss it. He's going to come in power and glory, and he's going to set all things right. Revelation 21, 1 through 5, describes this in this way. This is beautiful text. It describes what's going to happen when Jesus comes back. When his few, This is what we pray for when we say, your kingdom come. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Now the dwelling of God is with men, and he will live with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. And this, this verse, this is, this is the money, money part right here. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. Revolution. He who was seated on the throne said, I am making everything new. Then he said, write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. Notice that these beautiful words spoken at, spoken at the end, I'm making everything new. Who says them? The king. The one seated on the throne. That's who says those words. One day the kingdom will be fully present. The revolution will have come. We won't have to remove ourselves from the throne of our own lives. We won't have to pray against Satan. We'll live in perfect harmony with our creator God, the triune king. You know, our, uh, our five-year-old son, Lars, has been listening to an audio book, almost obsessively, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. It's the first of the Narnia Chronicles. Perhaps you've read it. Um, but if, it's, if you're unfamiliar or familiar with it, it's, it's an introduction to the world of, of Narnia that C.S. Lewis wrote about. And in, in this book, there's this cruel white witch that's put the land under a spell where it's, it's always winter and never Christmas. The king of Narnia is the great lion Aslan. Aslan created Narnia. And throughout the story, Aslan subtly and mysteriously makes appearances to people. And Aslan invites these people to resist the witch and join with him in bringing in a new kingdom and new reign to Narnia. And the story, it culminates with Aslan's defeat of the witch, but before that final victory, as Aslan slowly makes his way into the lives of more and more and more 
people, there are signs of spring coming to Narnia. The characters see birds chirping, they see snow melting, they see beautiful patches of green grass. When we pray for the kingdom of come, to come, we proclaim that spring is coming. And in fact has started to come in our hearts and in the life of our church. When we see God working in the lives of our kids and dig, when we see pictures of the middle school community group and here, there's a group of middle school kids getting to study James. We say, yeah, spring is coming. When we see the mercy team welcome people in and provide physical and material needs, we say, yeah, spring is coming. When we gather to pray because we say, God, we need leadership, we need a pastor, we don't know what to do, we've had strife in our church, people have left, help us, we say, spring is coming. When we gather here on a Sunday morning when it's hard and you don't want to be here and we sing, we say spring is coming. When we face addiction or loneliness or pain that we don't know where it came from or why it happened, but we say, God, you're good and I'm going to keep following you, we say spring is coming. So we join with Jesus. And even more than say spring is coming, we say your kingdom come, Jesus, your kingdom come. One author I read this week paraphrased this section of the prayer with the following words. Bring it on. Bring on your revolution. Reverse the effects of sin. Restore broken humanity. Come and reign without rival in all the earth. So here's a few questions for you as we close. How can you put yourself under God's rule this week? This week is there a place where you have a struggle you have, something going on where you say, God, I want to put yourself, I want to put myself under your rule? And what's a dark situation in your life? Could be dark like existentially really dark, sad, depressing. Could be dark just like, I don't know what to do with this thing. How can you hope in the future coming? of Christ's return. Like, how can you take the hope that he's making all things new and pull it into the situation you're in? That's sort of like a weird mental exercise, <laughs> but it's saying, like, I'm going to pull in the future hope of your kingdom into this reality as dark and bleak and hard as it is. The revolution has come and is coming, friends. God's kingdom come. Let me pray for us. Father God, we thank you that your, your kingdom has come in the person of Jesus Christ. We thank you, Jesus, for coming to this earth to, to, to love us, to rescue us. I think of the, the song we sang this morning, um, When I'm Lost, You Will Come to Me. You showed us on the cross that you came to us when we were lost. You came to this world, and thank you that... You taught us to pray for your kingdom to come, and so we pray that king, your kingdom would come in each individual heart in this room and listening online. We pray that we would take ourselves off the throne of our lives and put you on it. We pray against the work of Satan in our lives and pray that you would have dominion. We pray that you would come in the life of Be Free Church Dover corporately, that we would be about loving each other, caring for each other, and bringing your kingdom to bear in the city of Dover, in the seacoast, 
And we look ahead to the day when we can say that you make everything new and we pray we would pull that hope into the reality of our future lives, no matter what pain we're facing. In the great name of Jesus, our coming King, we pray. Amen.